Hi, I'm Mac. Hi, I'm Abigail. And this is Unsubs. This is the podcast where we recap, rate, and review all 324 episodes of Criminal Minds. And today, we're reviewing Season 3, Episode 13, Limelight! Initial thoughts about this episode? Um, I think what sums it up is when, um... I watched these earlier in the week, and then we were getting ready to record, and I was looking up to do, like, you know, grain of salt that I contribute to the episode, and I was research doing some research, and I was like, wait, shit, did I watch this? I must have. I know I did. Um, and I did. It's just this episode and some of the next ones are just, like, so utterly forgettable. Yeah, uh, that I was like, did I, did I even watch this? Yeah, I mean, ugh, I just feel like the message is like, if you want to be a successful woman, <laughs> you're gonna get kidnapped. <laughs> I don't know. I have. I just. I feel like this episode suffers from too much white man in the writers' room. And I say this as a white woman, but I just was feeling it so hard in this episode. But let's let's get in. Do you have a fun fact today? Why don't you start with a fun fact? It has now gotten to be so aggressively winter out of the blue. It's like Halloween ended and um, it was like, it's winter now. Um, to the point that like when I'm waking up for work on the weekends, it is still fully black outside. And I hate it so much. And I this isn't a super fun fact, but it's just like the aggressive seasonal depression that's coming ac- along with the aggressive it's dark outside and cold is um, not great. But the good news is daylight savings is tonight, so... Here's my my fun fact. Uh, I was um, pooping before we started recording, and I went to wash my hands, and I flushed the toilet, and Jeff got so excited that she jumped out of the litter box where she had also been pooping, and then got litter everywhere. Like, it's... It's my bathroom is right next to the room that she lives in and that I'm recording it. And it was like a fucking she flew on top of the toilet. So like before we were recording, I was like bleaching it because I was like, you got your gross cat poop on my toilet where my human poop is. But let's let's get into this. (laughs) This recap. (laughs) I love that you said that you didn't like this episode. And yet you have like what, like eight pages of notes. The more notes I take, the less I like the episode. (laughs) I just feel like season three is not the season for me. I just haven't been enjoying it like I enjoyed season two. I just feel like I'm shit-talking all of the episodes. (laughs) But uh, I guess we'll see how it goes. Uh, Well, we're, we're not in any way, shape, or form associated with the television show Criminal Minds. 
And our rating criteria is five categories and get 100 points. Criminal slash serial killer, character development, character arcs, forensics and context, script writing, background characters. Boom. Let's move on. We open on a storage unit bidding war where amateur storage connoisseurs, Stu and Dwayne, are bidding for an abandoned unit. They win the unit with a bid of 450, even though 250 was their cutoff. And because Stu has a feeling about this unit, not a good feeling, a feeling. And thank goodness he does, because uh, the boys get in, they get the unit. They they find this big ass chest in the unit, and they open the chest to find bondage porn and creepy murder notes. And at first, they're like, "Dude, this is wrong." And then they find pictures of bodies and drawings of tor- of a torture machine. And then they're like, "Dude, we gotta call the cops." Cut to the BAU, Rossi has been sent the storage unit case by an agent in the Philly field office. He and Reed take a road trip to Philly, and Reed is so excited about the prospect of a road trip with Rossi. He says, Sweet, I have books on tape with Peter Coyote reading the entire Foundation trilogy. And then he rushes off to go get them, which is also me, uh, because I spent today listening to, I I just finished watching season three of You, and I was like, let me go back and listen to to what I've just watched, (laughs) like a fucking nerd. Anyways, I didn't know what the fuck the Foundation trilogy is, so I looked it up, um, and according to Google, um... A a landmark of science fiction's golden age, Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy, which comprises the novels Foundation, Foundation and Empire, and Second Foundation, has long been regarded as a visionary masterpiece whose astonishing historical scope perfectly conveys science fiction's sense of wonder. To which I say, nerd... Oh, yeah, no, Asimov is, like, the nerdiest thing. Also, like, he, as just a person, makes me angry. Just because, like, let me, like, he it was, like, one of those just, like, so successful. I'm pretty sure he, like, graduated high school, like, super early or college as well. And is just, like, successful at everything. What a nerd. Yeah, just a huge nerd. We meet Agent Jill Morris in the Philly office, and she is also a nerd. (laughs) Agent Jill Morris, super fan of Rossi, also a little too enthusiastic about the storage unit case. Agent Morris believes that the owner of this storage unit is a sexual sadist who has committed crimes. Due to the nature of what was discovered in the unit, she's confident that they've discovered an active serial killer with a body count. Yeah, she's really psyched about all of this. She's she's ready to go. She's all hot and horny for this case. Agent Morris already ran the previous owner of the storage unit's name, which was a fake one. The storage unit went into arrears when the owner stopped making payments, and thus it was auctioned off. Rossi agrees with Agent Morris that the owner of the unit slash the person who wrote the essays about torture, porn, and bondage is likely an organized person who is very methodical. Therefore, it's unlikely that they would have forgotten to pay for the unit. 
<laughs> yeah, the, this unsub paces rent on time. <laughs> <laughs> His credit score is pristine. Eight fifty, baby. Eight fifty. <laughs> the owner of the storage unit made the choice to stop paying, knowing that the unit would be auctioned off and the torture porn discovered. And furthermore, it's not a crime to enjoy a little fetish. Mm-mm. Oh, no. And Rossi is skeptical that any crime has actually been committed. Rossi and Reed review everything and then report back to Agent Morris. And Rossi says, quote, The materials are the product of a disturbed individual, but there's nothing there to convince me that this person has acted on his fantasy. I knew you were. I knew you were gonna forget that I was. That that's what we're doing from now on. Well, we got we got Reed talking like this, and then we have Rossi just bellowing. I need them to collaborate on reading an audiobook together. Oh, maybe it'll be Isaac Asimov's The Foundations trilogy. <laughs> Rossi and Reed are ready to fuck off back to Quantico, and Agent Morris is like, "Wait, there's something else. There was something else in the box." And then she pulls out a lock of long blonde hair in a plastic evidence bag that she has just been keeping in her desk. Uh, and Rossi's like, all right, uh, I guess I'll call the rest of the team. Cut to the rest of the team showing up in Philly. They discuss that they'll have to link the items in the unit to actual crimes. As they prepare to part ways, Rossi gives them some words of encouragement. Quote, find the fetish, find the fiend. Morgan, friend, let's go back to the unit, see what else it can tell us about the man. I'll get your directions. We have to establish if this guy's taking his fantasies to the next level. We can use these materials, try to identify a signature and connect him to any open cases. On the surface, it reads like he wanted to try it all. I think isolating any one aspect might be tough. Dig deeper. Try linguistics, look for patterns in the handwriting. Rossi and I will take the images. Find the fetish, find the fiend. At the storage unit, Morgan and Prentice decide to play a little game called Best Insight, in which they make guesses about the unsub's personality based off of the items in the storage unit, and then the loser has to buy the winner lunch. Okay, I was going to say it seems unprofessional and unethical, but at the same time, like, it doesn't seem that far out of line of what would actually happen. I remember like hearing about different people who work in these kinds of jobs where they do have to like joke with each other a lot. Otherwise the job becomes extremely depressing. I would never be extremely depressed within six feet of Shamar Moore. (laughs) Just let that be known. Uh, Anyways, Prentice finds a box of things from the unsub's childhood. She says, quote, A happy kid, well-rounded, varied interests. She also finds colored drawings from his childhood, uh, dated 1976, uh, meaning that the unsub is 38. Based off of the drawings, the unsub is blonde and Caucasian. And Prentice notes that the mother leaves after a certain amount of time and the drawings get more sad. 
Morgan finds textbooks for engineering, mathematics, and a cab manual, meaning that the unsub was in trade school, meaning he likely works in a works or has worked in a fix-it field. And then Morgan pulls out dresses. They were all originally different sizes and were altered probably by the unsub to now fit the unsub. And Prentice calls the unsub a, quote, cross-dresser, which is such a shitty term that we are once again revisiting in this series. And both Prentice and Morgan give each other a knowing look after finding the dresses, which is so shitty. Like, we've cracked the case. And to which I say, fuck off. Listen, cross-dressing is not a precursor to murder, okay? Is that the correct terminology? I don't even know, to be honest. The thing is, I don't hear people say the term cross-dresser or cross-dressing that often anymore. So I don't know, depending on the context, whether it is truly derogatory or not. I mean, you would just say that you dress in drag. Like, that's what I hear. But drag is different than, like, presentation, you know? Like... Like, if it's one thing for, like, I have friends who are professional, like, uh, who professionally do drag, but that's, that's a costume and that's a persona and that's a performance. Like, that is different than being a person who is dressing in the clothing of a different gender than yours because you enjoy it. Like, if that makes sense, because it's like, you're not going to wear your, uh, drag brunch costume to dinner but you like like um because that's part of a performance and a context specifically um for this it sounds i don't know you know it's it, it gets into a kind of murky territory where presentation and gender are not intrinsically going to always be the same thing and obviously, like, this is from the early-ish two- 2000s, so our society's opinions and notions of the nuances of gender and sexuality and presentation are not what they are today. Um, yeah. But what I don't appreciate about this is that they're like, oh, this person is not conforming to the binary of what we know. So that means that they obviously are a a troubled person and be violent person. Yeah, and I I mean I'm just out of my depth, but I just feel like the the what what we learn about how the unsub uses the dresses later is like not cross-dressing. No, and also it's like, why was this the first thing they jumped to as well? Like, I my thought was like, oh, like maybe it's a token or what are they? Is that what they call it? A token or Su- like a souvenir? A souvenir. Maybe it's just a souvenir. Maybe he's into their sartorial performance that they have going on and like wants to keep it. Side note, I just Googled it. Cross-dressing is not a problematic term to use if you're not using it instead of trans. But using it uh, the way that we've been using it is not offensive. So we're in the clear there. Back at the Philly headquarters, Hotch and Reed realize that the unsub is most passionate about (laughs) about electrocution as a form of torture because... 
in his writing, he's writing so hard on the paper about electrifying women that he's tearing through the pages. Remember when you did that deep dive on handwriting analysis? (laughs) Graphology, yeah. Unfortunately, we get more graphology in this episode. So they begin to look for potential victims in the area who died from electrocution, and they find Dana Foster, a real estate agent who was murdered five years ago when she went to meet a potential buyer at a house. Meanwhile, Agent Morris has come up with some potential names for the unsub. She asks JJ which names JJ likes the best. The names are ACDC Killer, ETK, Electrocute, Torture, Kill. Oh my god. High Voltage Slayer, Fuse Box Butcher, and The Shock Therapist. And JJ is like, we generally try not to mythologize these guys. I have a lot of thoughts on that that I'm going to get into later in the deep dive. Garcia has found three more cases where victims were electrified, three females ages 31 to 38 whose bodies were discovered off of freeways in Maryland, New Jersey, and New York. The unsub disposed of the bodies across state lines to avoid detection, and apparently the unsub likes career women. Or they call it upwardly mobile women. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening? (laughs) White male writers writing the show. The last known victim was found five years ago, but Morgan and Reed don't believe that the unsub has stopped. Agent Morris asks how many women Reed thinks the unsub has killed in total. Reed guesses 19 additional, so 24 total. And she's, like, enthralled by all of this. Now we get into a long-ass profile. So here's the profile. They don't give us a little kitschy title, because I guess they're not trying to mythologize. Um, So this would be a white man in his 30s or 40s, to everyone's shock and surprise. Knowledge of circuitry and wiring, he likely works as an electrician or an electrical engineer. It would be a job that may give him access to a victim's home or workplace and the opportunity to observe his targets, which I feel like we've experienced this before in the show already, like, many times. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, these targets are attractive professional women. He sees them as strong, righteous, and unattainable. Like we said before, upward mobility. So he seeks to tear them down and reduce them to their base sexual creatures and punish them. He's a misogynist! So he's a sexual sadist and anger excitation so sexually aroused by the killing of these women and uh killing these women is an afterthought their pain is what he's after and he takes his time to exact maximum stimulation trophies like the dresses um they believe he's using them as a rehearsal fantasy thing so he keeps the dresses and he wears them and by doing so he can relive the torture and it's during this time that he's most likely pleasing himself in order to reinforce his association between suffering and gratification when he becomes dissatisfied with this he seeks out a new victim So, basically, he's been doing this for a long time, and he's been thinking about doing it most of his life. 
And he'll continue to evolve and find new ways of challenging himself and increasing the stimulation threshold. So basically, there are no boundaries for this man. There are no lengths to which he will not go. There is no mountain too high to climb. While the BAU is briefing the Philly PD about this case, Agent Morris goes on TV to do a press conference, <laughs> which the unsub sees. And then Hotch yells at Agent Morris because she blew up their spot. And he says, quote, nothing tears a case apart faster than an agent trying to make his or her name on it. Um, I have thoughts about this. Okay. So I agree that Morris kind of sucks um, and that everything she was doing was wrong and her trying to like gain notoriety and clout for this case is you know morally and ethically not super there um but maybe i'm wrong in this but i feel like we don't i feel like we see the female agents like quote unquote mess up more than the male agents (laughs) my first thought was l like you know we we got to see her get you know verbally reprimanded a lot for her mistakes but we don't see the male agents do that, have that experience nearly as much because it's like when something is going wrong, like it's like we, we see Hotch get like, you know, we, we, we have the whole thing with, what's her name? Strauss. Like we have that, but it's like, we already are siding with him because we know that he's not wrong. And then we had the whole thing with Morgan, but again, that was so like such different circumstances and and it's like, you know, they're wrongfully accused of doing something. But then when we have people like Elle and um, Morris, it's because they're just selfish or, you know, they're not focused on the case. They're focused on themselves. And it like just pisses me off. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Sexism. Yeah, for sure. Agent Morris shows up at Rossi's hotel room. This felt like it was going to be going in such a different direction than it actually did. It felt like they were trying to set it up for something steamy to happen, which I was like not here for. Yeah, and thank goodness they didn't. Yeah, it just it felt really uncomfortable. <laughs> and like he's supposed to be like this ladies' man, like a lady killer, and he's done nothing. He's flirted with no women. He ha- he's like yeah, he has no sexual energy at all. So Agent Morris apologizes to Rossi for doing the self-serving press conference and talks Rossi into getting a drink with her. She then justifies the press conference that she just apologized for by saying, quote, female ambition can be unseemly in the eyes of some people. And I'm just like, I'm just so exhausted by it. Because on the one hand, I'm like, this is so shitty that they're like trying to make this like, like a false feminist thing. Like, I, I don't even know like what the writer's message is with her character. It's so unclear. Cause on the one hand, she's like, I'm a feminist. I stand up for myself. And then on the other hand, it's like, she's bad. What she's doing is wrong and it's going to get her killed. And I'm like, what are we trying to say that? Like, if we can't, we can't be career driven or we're going to die. Like, I just don't see the clear message. It's very girl boss. 
It is very girl boss, but like you would think with like Prentice and Strauss that like the writers would be on board. Like, I just feel like they should have written her character differently. If they really wanted to like stress that like she's just doing this for fame, make it make it about fame and not about feminism, because I don't have to hear that, you know. She then tells Rossi that she heard him speak when she was at the FBI Academy and he asks her if back then when she was in the academy, her hair was lighter and longer. And she says, oh, you remember me? And he's like, no, the piece of hair you said you found in the storage locker was a lock of your hair from back when you were in the academy. Oh, my God. <laughs> wait for it. Wait for it. Quote, you held on to it as a vestige of the femininity you relinquished in the pursuit of your career ambitions. Your hair was lighter and a bit longer than, wasn't it? Talk about a good memory. No, I don't remember you. Oh. But that would explain the hair that you claimed to have found in that storage unit. The hair was a keepsake, I'm guessing. You held on to it as a vestige of the femininity you relinquished in the pursuit of your career ambitions. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening? The press conference Agent Morris gave brings in a bunch of new leads, almost too many leads. One woman is looking for her daughter who vanished on her way home two months ago. She was wearing a blue dress the last time she was seen. And the woman shows the BAU a picture of her daughter in the dress. Cut to the unsub wearing the same blue dress. Listening to a recording of who must be the woman in the picture who's missing. Uh, and the unsub on the recording is torturing her and she's begging for her life. Um, and he is like reenacting her part of the recording. Cut to a 911 operator who gets a call about, quote, a bleeder stripped of its clothes <laughs> off I-95. Cut quickly to Agent Morris and Hodge listening to the call and discussing it. And Agent Morris is like, anything strike you as odd? And Hotch is like stripped of its clothes, objectifies the victim. And I'm like, uh, is anyone to talk about how the unsub called the victim a bleeder? Cut to a woman driving in a car, and we later learn that her name is Katrina Townsley. Someone rear ends her, and when she pulls over to get their information, it's the unsub with the shitty dyed blonde hair, and he abducts her. He's, he fucking mix snatches her. Cut to the field off I-95. They find the body of a woman. They're unsure of the cause of death, but she does have electrical burns all over her body. Just as they're bagging up this bleeder, they, they find another body. We later learn the names of these victims are Mimi Adams and Sarah Coswell. And Garcia re realizes that both women were reported missing on the same day, meaning that the unsub is doing doubles. Agent Morris gets a call from the Chronicle, one of her contacts, Kat Townsley, who's a reporter there. Kat Townsley tells Agent Morris that the unsub contacted her directly and sent her a letter. And Morris gets all excited and she's like, I'll meet you. Um... And then she sneaks off to go see Kat without telling any of the members of the team. So she she's also abducted. She's also McFreaking abducted by the unsub. Cut back to the BAU members discussing the case. 
Rossi tells the other members of the team about Morris's fabricated evidence. And Hotch is like, why didn't you fucking tell us? And Rossi's like, oh, I just see so much of myself in Agent Morris. And then JJ rushes in to tell the team that another woman has been snatched because they don't know about Katrina Townsley, but now they fucking do. Um, And then Rossi's like, wait a minute. That's the phone call Agent Morris got. And then the BAU realized that Agent Morris is on the lam. On the lam! Uh, she's been abducted by the unsub. And Rossi's like, she's his final chapter. <laughs> <laughs> so Rossi blames himself. I told her, slow down. Check your ego. Use your team. And Reed says, David, there was no way you could have known that she was going to go off by herself. And Rossi is like, I did know. Sure as I know myself. Blood here. A couple of drops. Looks like she was dragged. This shouldn't have happened. Her guard was down. He tricked her into thinking she was meeting a friend. I told her, slow down. Check your ego. Use your team. David... There's no way you could have known that she was going to go off by herself. I did know. Sure as I know myself. Cut to, I don't know where, but the some, oh, it's the unsub's house. Kat Townsley is tied up to a bed frame uh, and, and she's being electrocuted by the unsub. And then Agent Morris is tied up directly across from her and she's being forced to watch Kat Townsley, her friend, being tortured. Uh, the unsub then kills Cat Townsley and then asks Agent Morris, are you ready? Beg me not to. You will. Reed uses his Jeopardy surface and Garcia uses her technology to find the unsub's address. The BAU arrives just in time to rescue Agent Morris. Morgan doesn't get to tackle the unsub because Blondie Mick, Mick Dresserson goes willingly. Uh, And then Rossi unties Agent Morris from the bed and she keeps apologizing and he hugs her. And we think, well, maybe this is what you get for being a career driven woman. So Agent Morris gets out of the hospital and immediately does a press conference. So she she never learned her lesson. She still wants the spotlight. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, and I guess they're not, the BAU is not going to get her fired for fabricating evidence because hashtag girl boss. Okay, so basically, um, I was trying to figure out what to kind of focus in on with this episode because, as we all know, it's not very good. Um, but I, I do think, as much as we shit on Morris, uh, for being a girl boss, um, I think what they could have ended up having a really cool kind of conversation about with this character is this like sensationalism that happens with like true crime and crime itself. That has been in conversation in the cultural zeitgeist a lot recently um, of, you know, how do we, are we supposed to consume this type of like true crime? Like, should you consume it? Should we talk about it? Like, what are, what are the ethics and morals involved in that? And um, I came across a couple articles, and one of them was um, from Vulture um, in 2018. I didn't pull any quotes from it, but it is a good source. The other one that I pulled a lot of quotes from is um, Mashable.com, 
This is from this year, uh, an interview with Celicia Stanton, who is the host of a podcast I admittedly have not heard of called Truer Crime. And basically, she covers true crime cases, but she tries to do it in a true, like, social justice kind of way and uh, contributing different perspectives. She was a victim of fraud uh, over the last year and on top of being, like, a Black woman. So how that perspective of, like, she is a marginalized person, but also she has experienced um, (laughs) how America handles justice by having been a victim of fraud. Like, she's so she, she talks about that. And one of the quotes that I thought was really interesting was, so much of true crime pretends to be victim-centered when it isn't. A lot of people seem to think that if you talk about how bad the perpetrator was and talk about how great the victim was and why they didn't deserve it, then it's victim-centered. But it's also victim-centered to talk about the root causes of why and how these crimes occur so you can help prevent this sort of thing from happening to future victims in a real way, not the sort of way of scaring everybody about crimes that don't actually happen a lot. That's very reactive, and that reactivity is the root of not only the problem with true crime media, but the criminal legal system itself. And I think that's real. like, I can see that in some of my own favorite true crime podcasts, which is why I feel good about the fact that, like, we talk about true crime content on Unsubs, but these are, this is TV. Yeah, and then, like, the fact that we're choosing to, you know, talk about true crime adjacent things and not, like, giving serial killers time anymore, yeah. I, I I agree with a lot of what um, Celicia Stanton is saying, and admittedly, I haven't listened to her podcast, so I'm really curious to hear about how she presents all of this um, stuff. Sometimes it's good to sit and evaluate the how and why and where you are consuming this true crime from. Like, who is it serving? Like, who is the intended audience? And also, who are the producers? Especially because a lot of true crime is produced by white women for white women, and we are a proponent of that. (laughs) I've listened to, like, almost exclusively true crime, and I think, you know, I I love listening to it, but I choose the podcasts I listen to carefully, and, like, I feel like now is a good opportunity to shout out some of those that, like, do a good job, like, Criminal is such a good fucking podcast. Like, I I cannot recommend it enough. Every episode is a different story. It's not, like, it's rarely murder. And then, like, Case File always does crime. Case File is, like, the most ethical. We don't know anything about him, really, outside the fact that he's Australian. And because he's Australian, he talks about all these Aboriginal cases about like how like that's this new season is like mostly cases about Aboriginal people who were killed and the cases were never solved because of police incompetence. Like that's his theme of this season is like police and detective incompetence. 
he just reads them, but he has a staff of writers who are like diverse and I support, I'm a Patreon donor to him. And then finally, I think um, Obsessed with Disappear does a really good job too. And they are a comedy podcast, but they like just cover cases of people who disappear and then they have family members from those those cases come on the show and talk about how to help and support the families, which I think is super cool. And I'm actually wearing their merch right now. But the reason for me bringing this up wasn't to like make us all feel bad about the ways in which we consume true crime. It's just like, give it a thought and just, you know, just think about it, keep it in mind. And if you guys have ideas of ways that we can be better about it let us know but all right let's let's rate this <laughs> criminal slash serial killer i just didn't like it at all i didn't like it me either do i give it a five yeah for reasons we've already said character development and character arcs there weren't really any I do think we have to give some points for, like, as much as I hated the whole Rossi Agent Morris thing, like, he did kind of get into his feels about it. And he did seem to, like, have, even though I felt like she didn't have, like, that connection with him, he was really trying to have, like, a non-sexual, like, father relationship with her. You you know, maybe a 10. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Forensics and context. Three. Uh, I think we could give it a really low score for the way they treated, yeah, cross-dressers. Mm-hmm. Script writing. Ooh. <laughs> it was an action-packed script with lots of details. I was so tempted to f- spend a lot of time and write out the unsubs prose. I thought that would have been really funny. But I was also like, this is super late at night and I'm not going to do that right now. But I do feel like a lot of effort was put into trying to like create all of this like backlog of stuff in the unsub storage facility that we should give some points for. Do you want to give it like a a seven? (sighs) Maybe give it an eight. Yeah. Someone had to write out all of that prose very neatly. That poor props person. (laughs) Um, paid intern, background characters. Morris sucked, but, like, she also was, she did stand out, though. Yeah, I want to give her a 15. She sucks, but, like, I just feel like she she never had a chance the way she was written. I agree. 41. Well, you guys should check out our website because I've been spending a lot of time working on it and uploading all of our um, deep dives and all of our, like, literally, you'll have my notes, what I wrote and read (laughs) on this recording. You know, this is improv, but, you know, I think it's pretty cool. So you should definitely check that out. It'll be up to date by the time you hear this episode. And you can follow us um, on the podcast on all of the socials. And you can follow me at yournewapartment.tumblr.com. And you can follow me at my very inactive Instagram between stage and screen. 
podcast and also listen to all the backlog that ooh, all the backlog of the episodes I have of that. And I hopefully will be coming back with that soon. But you know what? Priorities, man. <laughs> uh well well peace out guys. Ooh, we got Jen coming back. Next episode is a fun one. This is the big Rossi episode, guys. Also, keep an eye out for some Patreon stuff. Yeah, we're actually about to record a Patreon episode right now, so I'm super excited. So just keep your eyes peeled.